1: We hope you enjoy this episode from our series, Famous Fates. It's about the impactful lives and shocking deaths of history's most influential people. To hear even more episodes each week, subscribe to Famous Fates exclusively on Spotify. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies.
2: And all of a sudden, just the weight...
1: Capone, convicted of dodging taxes,
3: may get 25 years. 11 years for King Capone. Massacre confession puts Capone in shadow of chair. Scarface Capone absolved of murder. Al Capone at death's door. Scarface
2: Al Capone dies in Florida Villa.
1: He ruled the streets of Chicago.
2: His knack for bootlegging kept a Prohibition-era
1: populace lush with liquor. He was known as a modern-day Robin Hood.
2: Until he blew his public goodwill by carrying out a brutal gang massacre in broad daylight.
1: But in the end, it was tax evasion that brought the mighty Al Capone to his knees.
2: That's right. And by the time Capone got out of prison, he had already entered his final years of decay. After years of worsening symptoms from late-stage syphilis, Al Capone ultimately died of a stroke on January 25th. 1947
1: well, you know vanessa in spite of the stroke and the syphilis and the dementia i guess you could say it was the death of his reputation that really did him in
2: well it was the stroke carter
1: fair enough. hi i'm vanessa richardson and i'm carter roy welcome to famous fates a podcast original exclusive to spotify
2: Each week we'll release five fresh episodes centered around a common theme, such as Hollywood icons, influential women, or music legends.
1: In each episode, we'll take a close look at the remarkable life of a different person. With the help of voice actors, we'll dramatize their incredible lives, reimagining their greatest and weakest moments.
2: Then we'll examine their controversial deaths. Some deaths came too soon, some remained shrouded in mystery, and some changed the world forever.
1: Today, we're covering America's first-ever public enemy number one, the man behind Scarface, legendary 1920s Chicago mobster Al Capone.
2: You can find episodes of Famous Fates and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. To stream Famous Fates for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Famous Fates in the search bar. Famous Fates is a Spotify exclusive, so you can only find it on Spotify.
1: At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Network.
2: Now, back to the life of Al Capone.
0: Sorry to hear about your old man, Al. Sure you are. You think just because my pops has passed on, I'm going to come running back to you? Well, why not? You want to spend the rest of your life as a buttoned-up bookie? You got mouths to feed now, Scarface. What good's an honest living if it ain't enough to actually keep you alive? I told you not to call me Scarface. One word. Chicago. It's like the damn gold rush out there. These here streets, you can't stake any kind of claim without tripping over five other clowns who think Brooklyn owes them something for figuring out the public bus system. But out there...
3: What, you want me to come out and man your little lemonade stand or something?
0: Funny. All right, Capone. You wanna know what I'm up to out in Chicago? What? I took over Big Jim's empire. Got into bootlegging. It's making me a rich man, Capone. Play your cards right, you could be a rich man too. I'm listening boy.
1: Well, the original Scarface was hanging around Brooklyn long before it was cool.
0: The
2: fourth of nine children, Alphonse Capone was born to Italian immigrants Gabrielle and Teresa on January 17, 1899. And when it comes to
1: his criminal career, let's just say
2: he got a head start.
1: Rumor has it, he started pimping prostitutes before he hit puberty.
2: Capone was a smart kid, but he was also a mischief maker with a temper. And after the sixth grade, he quit school for good. He spent the next few years trying his hand at various honest jobs.
1: Candy stores, bowling alleys, you name it, Capone probably tried it.
2: But by the time he hit 15 or 16, Capone had already joined his first gang, the South Brooklyn Rippers. From there, he got sucked deeper and deeper into the orbit of the legendary Five Points Gang.
1: The Five Points Gang was named for a slum-like neighborhood in Lower Manhattan, where a lot of Italian and Irish immigrants lived in squalor. The gang was formed in the late 1890s by an Italian immigrant named Paul Kelly.
2: Like all gangs, the Five Points gang profited off of revenue from the neighborhood's rampant illegal activity.
1: You know, gambling dens, brothels, the works.
2: But the Five Pointers were especially formidable because of their reputation for brutality and, of course, their power at the ballot. These guys practically invented city hall corruption. In particular, they were in bed with a powerful democratic political organization called Tammany Hall. The Tammany Hall ward bosses presided over the Five Points area of Manhattan, and by the turn of the century, Tammany Hall had decidedly chosen the Five Pointers as their gang of
1: choice. By the time Capone started running with the Five Pointers, he had been making extra money for a while working as a bouncer at various brothels and running assorted errands for the legendary racketeer Johnny Torrio before long, Torrio hired Capone to work at the Harvard Inn, a Coney Island saloon run by Torrio's business associate, Frankie Yale. If Al Capone was the first famous, or infamous, gangster, Johnny Torrio and Frankie
2: Yale were kind of like the forefathers of organized crime and both men gladly took Capone under their wing.
1: It was Torrio and Yale who recruited Al Capone to the Five Pointers. And in addition to being Capone's boss at the Harvard Inn, Yale quickly became his mentor. For all his racketeering, Yale saw himself as a businessman first, and he never got his hands too dirty. If Yale needed someone beat up, or worse, he hired somebody else to do the nasty business.
2: Somebody like Al Capone.
1: Al Capone was indispensable to Yale. He excelled at handling difficult matters, both as a Harvard Inn bouncer and doing Yale's dirty work on the side.
2: But underneath it all, Capone was still the same mischievous kid who couldn't keep his temper.
1: Which is how one shift at the Harvard Inn in August 1917 earned old Scarface the nickname that would haunt him all his life. Hey, honey.
3: What do you want? How's about that walk on the beach I asked for?
0: Look, Andy...
3: Name's Alphonse. Alphonse Capone.
0: I don't care if your name is Woodrow
2: Wilson. I already told you, I ain't interested.
3: Suit yourself.
0: Hey, sis. What's the matter? Ugh, that creep doesn't want to take no for an answer. Well, don't look now, because here he comes.
3: I'll tell you one thing. You've got a nice ass, honey. And I mean that as a compliment. I think you owe my sister an apology. Relax, Shrimpy. I was just kidding around. Yeah? Well, kid around on this! Bad news, pal. You just messed with the wrong guy.
0: Uh, Mess with this! Uh.
2: (laughs) One night at the bar in August, 1917, Capone made the mistake of hitting on Lena Galuccio with an earshot of her brother Frank, so Frank slugged Capone across the face.
1: Problem is, Frank was about half Capone's size, so all that punch really did to Capone was piss him off, and you didn't want to make Alphonse Capone angry.
2: Fearing for his life, Frank pulled out a knife and started slashing at Capone's face and neck. When Capone went
1: down, like a ton of bricks,
2: Frank Aluccio fled the Harvard Inn, and his victim was rushed to Coney Island Hospital. Capone received 80 stitches that day, and he was told he'd wear the scars for the rest of his life.
1: They weren't lying. On that day, Al Capone, much to his chagrin, became known as Scarface. After
2: that incident, Al Capone decided to lay low for a little while.
1: And before long, he had another incentive to keep his nose clean. On December 30th, 1918, when he was still only 19 years old, Al Capone married May Coughlin, an Irish lass who was already the mother of his child.
2: After that, Capone really tried to keep on the straight and narrow. He quit working for Frankie Yale, moved to Baltimore, and got a white-collar job as a bookkeeper for a legitimate construction firm. For a while, it really seemed like Alphonse Scarface Capone was going to make the grade.
1: Ain't that the way it always is.
2: <laughs> Just when you finally got it all figured out.
1: But everything falls to pieces.
2: Around the time Al and his family moved to Baltimore, his father Gabriel's health began declining. And on the morning of November 14th, 1920, Gabriel went to the pool hall across the street from his house, just like he did pretty much every morning, and suddenly collapsed.
1: He died of a heart attack right there at the pool hall.
2: After that, all bets were off for Al Capone. And when Johnny Torrio came back into Al's life with the offer of a lifetime, well...
1: Let's just say it was an offer he couldn't refuse.
2: While Capone was getting straight in Baltimore, Johnny Torrio had moved to Chicago to work for the Windy City's reigning vice-lord. For a gangster, Chicago in 1920 was like the promised land—gambling, brothels.
1: And with prohibition in full swing, the advent of bootlegging offered an entirely new set of business opportunities.
2: Now that Gabriel was dead, Teresa and Al's siblings needed all the financial help they could get. So when Torrio came knocking with the opportunity to earn more money than an honest life could ever offer, Capone gave notice to his boss in Baltimore and hoofed it to Chicago, alone.
1: Now, Johnny Torrio's boss in Chicago was Big Jim Colosimo. Colosimo was the head honcho of a local crime organization called the Chicago Outfit, which operated more than 100 brothels across the city.
2: Torrio had originally gone to Chicago to help Big Jim get rid of some extortionists. And afterwards, he stayed on to keep the various operations running smoothly. When Prohibition came along, Torrio figured this was his chance to make some real dough. But Big Jim didn't want to get involved.
1: Talk about a buzzkill.
2: That was when Torrio realized Big Jim was going soft.
1: And the mob couldn't afford to be held back by a high-ranking soft touch. Not when there was so much money to be made. So... Torrio invited Frankie Yale to Chicago.
2: On May 11, 1920, Frankie Yale killed Big Jim Colosimo.
1: With rumored help from Capone.
2: And after that, Johnny Torrio inherited Big Jim's illicit empire.
1: And that was when the bootlegging began.
2: When Capone goes to Chicago ahead of his family, Torrio put him to work as a bouncer in a brothel where he soon contracted syphilis.
1: Ugh, this poor wife. She stood by him, though, to the very end. To the end is right. Capone wouldn't find out he had syphilis until decades later, at which point it was too late to reverse the damage already done by the disease. But we'll get back to that later.
2: We'll return to our story in just a moment. Now, back to the life of Al Capone. When Capone got to Chicago, it didn't take long for Torrio to recognize how valuable Capone could prove to be. Between Capone's street smarts and the bookkeeping skills he picked up in Baltimore, His arrival in Chicago offered an opportunity for Torrio to really take things to the next level.
1: Problem is, Torrio kind of invented the term low-profile, and Capone couldn't define subtle if you gave him a dictionary. He developed a reputation pretty quickly for drinking and mischief-making, at one point even drunk driving right into a parked taxi.
2: Yeah, Torrio pulled some strings at City Hall to get Capone off the hook. But he knew he had to do something to get Capone to simmer down, so he sent for Capone's family to join him in Chicago. Oh,
1: he called the wife. Low blow.
2: Maybe, but it worked. Once his wife and kids arrived, Capone cleaned up his act.
1: Mm, At least temporarily.
2: And soon, Torrio was rapidly expanding his reach across Chicago as the new leader of the Chicago outfit, with Capone as his right-hand man. Before long, the Chicago outfit was the biggest organized crime syndicate in the city.
1: But that doesn't mean they didn't have competition. The outfit was allied with the Jenna brothers, whose number one rivals were Dean O'Banion's North Side Gang.
2: Torio was wary at the prospect of an all out gang war, so under his direction, the outfit and the Northside Gang formed a fragile alliance.
1: Until O'Banion cheated Torio out of half a million bucks and got him sent to prison. Yikes. Now tell me about it. Later that year, in the fall of 1924, O'Banion was murdered in his flower shop.
2: Wait. You're telling me that this hardened, murderous Chicago gangster spent his days running a flower shop?
1: Apparently the guy had a real knack for floral arrangements.
2: In any event, O'Banion's death led to the very gang war Torrio had been trying to avoid, and on January 24th, 1925, the Northsiders ordered a hit on Torrio.
3: Come on, Johnny. You can't just quit on me. You've got so much to live
0: for No kidding, I got so much to live for, Al. Enough for the dramatics already. I'm going to Italy, not dying. But Johnny, think of what we could do to Chicago. Think of what the outfit could become.
1: (laughs) Oh, it's all yours, Al. Me? I'm quitting. It's Europe for me. By some miracle, Torrio survived the assassination attempt.
2: But by the time he recovered, he was sick of Chicago. And so at the end of 1925, Johnny Torrio resigned from organized crime and moved his family to Italy, leaving Al Capone, age 26, in charge of the Chicago outfit. Mob boss at 26 years old?
1: Wow. Now I feel like a real underachiever.
2: Capone took to his new role like a duck to water.
1: Almost as if he'd just been waiting for Torrio to hand him the reins.
2: He liked nice things.
1: Custom suits, gourmet food, the finest cigars money could buy.
2: And even more than that, he liked being a public figure. He went to City Hall pretty much every day.
1: Wasn't he worried they were going to arrest him? I mean, everyone knew he was a crime boss.
2: Yeah, but on what grounds? The Chicago outfit put the organized in organized crime. There wasn't anything to arrest him for.
1: Not without proof, anyway.
2: Exactly. For one thing, the Chicago Outfit had moved their base of operations to the nearby suburb of Cicero back in 1923.
1: We'll circle back to that later.
2: Mm -hmm. The point is, with the bulk of their criminal dealings technically taking place outside the jurisdiction of the Chicago PD, there really wasn't much the police could do.
1: And even if they had hard evidence, it wouldn't exactly have been a picnic pinning any of it on Capone. As the top brass of the Chicago outfit, he followed the same criminal philosophy as his old mentor, Frankie Yale. Never get your hands too messy. And if you need any heads cracked or kneecaps busted, make sure you hire somebody else to do the dirty work.
2: Mm-hmm. Anyway, at that time, arresting Capone wasn't exactly going to win anyone over.
1: Let's face it, the man knew how to work a crowd.
2: Right. He opened up one of the nation's first soup kitchens, paid for strangers' surgeries, and gave jobs to the poor and needy in his community.
1: Well, never mind that a lot of these jobs involved doing dirty work for the Chicago outfit, which means they were technically illegal. Come on,
2: Carter, you gotta make a living somehow.
1: Well, within the world of organized crime, Capone's claim to fame was a little more sinister. Under his direction, the Chicago outfit expanded into a criminal enterprise that was raking in as much as $100 million a year.
2: And remember, this was 1920s money.
1: But that bump in revenue wasn't all power lunching and boozy schmoozing. Al Capone's reign as Chicago's leading crime boss brought an unforetold increase in violence throughout the city.
2: Let's put it this way. If Capone wanted your establishment to buy liquor from him, you refused him at your own peril.
3: I'm telling you, best deals in town. Booze ain't that bad either.
2: And I'm telling you, Mr. Capone, we don't run that kind of establishment here.
3: You sure about that?
2: I'm afraid we must decline your, uh... It's a very generous offer, Mr. Capone. We, we just... You know, it's, it's not for us.
3: You know, they say turning down a business proposition from Al Capone is bad for your health.
2: I'm... I'm sorry, sir.
3: Oh well. It's your loss.
0: What was that?
2: Who's there?
1: Capone excelled at using violence and bribery to get what he wanted across the board. Well, not just in business, but in politics as well. Back when Torrio was still in charge, he and Capone had used every dirty trick they knew to take
2: over the town council of Cicero, Illinois, which was a suburb outside of Chicago. After the purportedly incorruptible Democrat William E. Dever was elected mayor of Chicago in 1923, the outfit moved most of their operations to Cicero.
1: Both to remove themselves from their gangland rivals. More on that later. And to regroup in an environment where they faced less political pressure.
2: But establishing the Chicago outfit's base of power in Cicero came at a terrible cost for the Capone clan. Please,
0: sir, don't hurt me. Hurt you? My good man, I am out here trying to protect you. All I want to do is make sure you vote in your best interests.
2: But how do you know what my best interests?
0: Let me put it this way. What's your name, son?
2: Um, Paul. N- my name is Paul.
0: Nice to meet you, Paul. And you live right here in Cicero, don't you? Well, sure I do. Uh, just around the corner. Well then, your best interests are whatever my brother wants. Mr. Capone. You can call me Frank. Now, who the hell is that? After
2: DeVer was elected mayor of Chicago, Capone got to work outfitting Cicero with the usual array of speakeasies, brothels, and gambling dens.
1: Which meant getting city manager Joseph Z. Klena on their payroll. In
2: 1924 rolled around, Al decided it was time to make sure Klena became mayor of Cicero. Trouble is, local Democratic politicians didn't want to let the race go without a fight.
1: This didn't sit too well with Al, so he tasked his older brother, Frank,
2: who was by now a trusted and high-ranking member of his brother's criminal operations,
1: with keeping order, and Frank relished the assignment.
2: On the day of the primary election in April of 1924, Frank sent a wave of terror washing over the voting age population of Cicero.
1: He led an assault on a rival candidate's campaign office, ultimately having nine campaign workers detained. More like kidnapped. Uh, Until voting had ended.
2: As far as the voters themselves were concerned, Frank sent gang members with machine guns to polling places across Cicero in order to make sure everyone voted right.
1: (laughs) Well, now that was thoughtful of him.
2: Of course. All this chaos and intimidation outraged the citizens of Cicero. And by late afternoon, the Chicago PD sent about 70 plainclothes officers to Cicero to help maintain order. Around dusk, One Sergeant William Cusack was patrolling the city when they spotted Frank and a few of his flunkies at a polling station on Cicero Avenue and 22nd Street. Cusack and his squad pulled up at the polling station and started walking over when...
1: The police swear Frank shot first.
2: But eyewitnesses claimed the gangsters never even opened
1: fire. Either way, Frank Capone was fatally shot in the showdown.
2: At the end of the day, though, it didn't make a difference. Al Capone's candidate, Joseph Z. Klenna, was elected mayor of Cicero, and from that point onward, Cicero was effectively known as the capital of Caponeland.
1: Which isn't to say that Capone had given up on Chicago. In fact, it was largely because of Capone's support that the Republican candidate, William Hale Thompson, beat out DeVers' bid for re-election in 1927.
2: No personal vendetta whatsoever on Capone's (laughs) part, I'm sure.
1: Well, in fairness, Thompson won over a lot of people by promising to reopen illegal saloons across the city. Capone may have been the top guy profiting from bootlegging, but he was rich for a reason. Chicago wanted booze, and lots of it.
2: As Al liked to say...
3: When I sell liquor, it's called bootlegging. When my patrons serve it on Lakeshore Drive,
2: it's called hospitality.
1: Thompson won the 1927 mayoral election, and Capone continued to support him.
2: On the day of one primary election in April 1928, Capone's in house bomber, James Bel Castro, even targeted voting booths in areas where Thompson's opponents were expected to win.
1: Now that day became known as the Pineapple Primary. Unfortunately, not in honor of Hawaiian pizza or pineapple upside-down cake.
2: Mm, Thanks for making me hungry, Carter. No, in the 1920s, a pineapple was actually a slang term for a hand grenade.
1: Mm, I'm still ordering a Hawaiian pizza tonight.
2: Mm, But as brutal as that day was.
1: The bombings resulted in the deaths of at least 15 people.
2: It paled in comparison to the 1929 St. Valentine's Day massacre.
1: In many ways, the massacre was seen as the apex of Capone's criminal career. But the truth is, we're not even sure if he was involved. In fact, most people don't even know exactly what happened that day.
2: In a word, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre was a brutal mass shooting in which a car full of men dressed up like cops drove up to a garage operated by Capone's biggest gangland rivals.
1: And slaughtered all eight of the men inside. Ah, great, the fuzz. And we was having such a nice morning too. All right, boys, up against the wall, the lot of you, and don't look behind you. Wait,
3: what are you doing?
1: Now we got to get out of here. Come on, boys, let's move.
0: My God, Frank, Frank, <laughs> come on! Do you know me, Frank? Yes. Uh, Your sergeant left us. I won't talk. Come on, Frank. You gotta let me help.
2: Look, Gusenberg, I know we had our differences, you and me. But right now, I'm on your side for once, big guy. I promise. You just gotta trust me right now, okay? Cops did it. You're telling me, okay, fine. How many, Frank? I mean, what did they look like? Do you remember the car Uh, they were driving?
1: Oh, for God's sakes, Loftus, get me to a hospital.
2: We'll return to our story in just a moment now back to the life of al capone you know the funny thing about the saint valentine's day massacre is that everybody thinks of it as the apex of capone's reign of violence in chicago but the truth of the matter is nobody could ever confirm that capone even had anything to do with it
1: here's what we know on the morning of february 14th, 1929 a big black Cadillac rolled up to a garage on Clark Street, owned by the gangster Bugs Moran. Well, there were seven guys inside the garage, five of Moran's gangsters, their faithful but relatively clean nosed mechanic, and an optometrist named Reinhardt Schwimmer.
2: Now, Schwimmer wasn't a tough guy in any way. He just liked to hang around the Moran gang so he could brag about his connection to the criminal underworld.
1: Well, he picked a bad day to be a brown noser, that's for sure. So, this Cadillac rolls up to the garage and four or five men get out of the car.
2: According to eyewitnesses, the driver wore a fancy fur topcoat and gray fedora. Two
1: others were wearing police uniforms. But this wasn't a routine cop stop. These men were packing heat.
2: Specifically, two submachine guns and a
1: 12-gauge shotgun. The visitors forced all seven men in the garage against the wall and opened fire. Then the killers piled back into the Cadillac and sped out of the neighborhood.
2: Six of the men in the garage died then and there.
1: The last guy, a local goon named Frank Gusenberg, was still alive by the time Sergeant Thomas J. Loftus arrived on the scene.
2: Despite being shot 14 times, Gusenberg was able to hang on long enough to croak out an accusation. Cops. Cops did it.
1: He died en route to the hospital.
2: As soon as the press found out what happened, news of the massacre went national.
1: And the first name on everybody's lips was Al Scarface Capone.
2: Now, that was a pretty reasonable conclusion. Al led the biggest crime syndicate in Chicago, after all, and the victims of the massacre worked for Bugs Moran.
1: Who was Bugs Moran, you ask? Oh, just the leader of the North Side Gang.
2: In case you've forgotten, it was the North Side gang that tried to put a hit on Capone's old mentor Johnny Torrio after their leader, Dino Banyan, was murdered in his own flower shop. Rumor has it Capone engineered the massacre as a way of snuffing out Moran once and for all. And there's a decent amount of circumstantial evidence to support this conclusion.
1: For one thing, some of Capone's guys had rented an apartment across the street from the garage on Clark Street where the massacre occurred.
2: But the details get muddy pretty quickly. For starters, in December of 1929, police searched the home of a bank robber named Fred Killer Burke in connection with a different case and found a huge arsenal of guns in his possession.
1: Including the guns that were used in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. But it's hard to say whether that counts as evidence for Capone or against him.
2: Exactly. While Fred Burke had his fair share of mob ties, he never formally joined up with the Chicago Outfit, or any other gang for that matter. Burke was too much of a free agent for his possession of the guns to count as proof of Capone's involvement, or lack thereof.
1: At the end of the day, the police never found any hard evidence linking Capone to the crime.
2: In fact, there's evidence to suggest the massacre was planned out and executed by one William White whose cousin had previously been killed in a Meringue gang shootout.
1: But the public didn't care, and neither did the federal government. As far as Herbert Hoover was concerned...
2: And, according to the Chicago Crime Commission, as of March 1930...
1: Capone was now public enemy number one.
2: Following the St. Valentine's Day massacre, Chicago was determined to bring him down by any means necessary, But almost immediately, Pennsylvania stole the thunder right out from under their nose.
1: In May of 1929, he was sentenced to a year in prison for carrying a gun with him on a trip to Philly. He served nine months and was let out for good behavior in March of 1930. Of
2: course, this was a huge embarrassment to the Chicago PD.
1: All of Chicago wanted to know why they never thought of just arresting Al for carrying a gun.
2: But in the end, it wasn't illegal firearms that did him in, but something far more sinister. The Internal Revenue Service. That's right. It was tax evasion that brought the mighty Scarface to his knees.
1: Turns out, even if you make all your money off of illegal brothels that cater to gin-guzzling, blackjack-dealing gunrunners, you still owe Uncle Sam.
2: You know what, Carter? Let's back up a bit. Back in 1927, the Supreme Court had ruled that illegally earned income was nevertheless subject to income tax. That's what inspired the IRS to focus on Capone.
1: Well, they tapped Frank J. Wilson to investigate, and Wilson honed in on the idea that all they had to do to prove Capone's income was coax him into admitting it himself. Pretty shrewd. He found their ultimate trump
2: card in the form of Capone's brother, Ralph, who was himself tried for tax evasion in 1930.
1: He lost, by the way.
2: This spooked Al pretty bad, and he instructed his lawyer to regularize his own tax position, ASAP.
1: And you know what the IRS received in the mail later that year?
2: A letter from Capone's lawyer stating that Capone was willing to pay back taxes on income of $100,000 for the previous few years.
1: Boom.
2: All that time, the FBI and the Chicago PD had invested in sniffing out Capone's underworld connections, but in the end, their coup de grace was a gift freely given by Scarface himself. New York Daily News, October 18,
3: 1931. Reporting from Chicago. The fist of the federal law reached out tonight and clipped Alphonse Scarface Capone, a belt on the chin that left the king of gangdom groggily facing a possible fine of $50,000 and 17 years in the penitentiary. After deliberating 8 hours and 18 minutes, a jury before Judge James Wilkerson found the crime overlord guilty on five counts of tax evasion. Three of these carry the five-year sentence for felonies. The other two, one year each as a misdemeanor, a total of 17 years. The fine on each conviction is $10,000. The big gangster grinned when the verdict was read, finding him guilty on five of the 23 counts listed in the indictments. But beneath the smirk was the pallor of a prize fighter who has taken a roundhouse right on the whiskers.
1: In November of 1931, Capone was ultimately sentenced to 11 years and $50,000 in fines.
2: Plus, court fees adding up to over $30,000.
1: He started out at Cook County Jail before being transferred to federal prison in Atlanta. And in both places, he made his notoriety work for him. He had unlimited access to the warden and regularly used the cash he somehow had stockpiled in his cell to tip guards who were willing to grant him special requests.
2: So in 1934, the Attorney General and the Head of the Federal Prisons arranged for Capone to be transferred to a facility where he wouldn't be granted so much leeway.
0: Gentlemen, welcome to Alcatraz. Allow me to introduce myself. I am Warden James Johnston, and I am here today to make sure your orientation runs smoothly. One by one, I'll be calling you up to receive your prison number. And once you get your number... Yeah, this again. I've
3: been through this whole rigmarole a few times by now. Don't worry, I got this. Capone Alphonse. Thank you, James. I'm gonna call you Jim, if you don't mind. Now, I've been talking with the guys and it seems a few of them are concerned about the temperatures. I was hoping we could discuss heating, especially on account of the fact that winter's here. I mean, it's not Chicago,
0: but a winter on the water, Jim. I'm sure you can imagine. Mr. Capone, your inmate number is AZ-85. You may step back in line.
3: I, uh, yes,
0: sir. Oh, and Al, Warden Johnston will do quite nicely.
2: Alcatraz was no Cook County jail.
1: From the second Al Capone arrived there, Warden Johnston saw to it that he would not receive any special rights or privileges whatsoever. Capone held out, but eventually he admitted. It looks like Alcatraz has got me licked. But that wasn't
2: the only thing eating Al Capone. Remember that syphilis he contracted back in his early Chicago days when he was working as a brothel bouncer? Turns out in all those years, he never bothered to seek treatment.
1: Well, during Capone's time in prison, it seemed like the disease was finally catching up to him. While at Alcatraz, he started exhibiting advanced symptoms, among them dementia and parasis.
2: Doctors decided to try treating him with malaria injections, figuring the malaria would wipe out the syphilis. But instead, the treatment nearly killed him outright.
1: You know, if I had to guess that a cure for syphilis, induced malaria would probably not have been my first choice. Probably not even my tenth. By the time Capone was
2: released from prison in late 1939, he was a shell of the man he had once been.
1: Immediately after his release, he spent several months at a Baltimore hospital receiving treatment for syphilis. In the following years, he was even one of the first patients to receive penicillin as a treatment for the disease. But after all this time, the damage had already been done. When Capone was examined in 1946 by his physician and a Baltimore psychiatrist, both doctors concluded that Al, at that point, had the mentality of a 12-year-old child.
2: Capone lived out his final years on Palm Island in Florida with his wife and family before dying of a stroke on January 25, 1947.
1: He was 48 years old. In less than half a century, Capone completely redefined organized crime and cemented the image of the mobster in popular culture forever.
2: Not to mention that between his soup kitchens and his frequent acts of charity for the neediest members of his community, he practically invented public service.
1: Capone's downfall may have been undignified, but that isn't the part of his story that endures in the public memory. To Americans, he remains larger than life. Scarface, public enemy number one,
2: Chicago's very own Robin Hood. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of Famous Fates and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Famous Fates is a Spotify exclusive.
1: Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easier for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Famous Fates for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
2: To stream Famous Fates on Spotify, just open the app and type Famous Fates in the search bar. Remember, it's a Spotify exclusive, so you can only find the show right here.
1: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
2: We'll see you next time.
1: If you want to hear more episodes like this, subscribe to Famous Fates, available exclusively on Spotify.